If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Sadia Hartman is the author of Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, uh, Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Route, and Scenes of Subjection, Terror, Slavery, and Self-Making in the 19th Century. She is a Guggenheim Fellow and has been a Coleman Fellow and a Fulbright uh, Scholar. She just got awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant, and she's a professor at Columbia University and a New Yorker. Um, so she's going to read. Thank you. No okay, so I'm just going to read two little things to give you a feel of the book. So I'll read from the beginning. Um, And this is The Terrible Beauty of the Slum. You can find her in the group of beautiful thugs and two fast girls congregating on the corner and humming the latest rag, or lingering in front of Wanamaker's and gazing lustfully at a pair of fine shoes displayed like jewels, behind the plate glass window. Watch her in the alley, passing a pitcher of beer back and forth with her friends, brash and lovely in a cut-rate dress and silk ribbons. Look in awe as she hangs halfway out of a tenement window, taking in the drama of the block and defying gravity's downward pull. Step onto any of the paths that cross the sprawling city and you'll encounter her as she roams. Outsiders call the streets and alleys that comprise her world a slum. For her, it is just the place where she stays. You'd never happen onto her block unless you lived there too, or had lost your way, or were out on an evening lark seeking the pleasures yielded by the other half. The voyeurs on their slumming expeditions feed on the lifeblood of the ghetto, long for it and loathe it. The social scientists and the reformers are no better with their cameras and their surveys, staring intently at all the strange specimens. Her ward of the city is a labyrinth of foul alleys and gloomy courts. It is Africa town, the Negro quarter, the native zone, the Italians and Jews engulfed by proximity, disappear. It is a world concealed behind the facade of the ordered metropolis. The not-yet-dilapidated buildings and decent homes that face the street hide the alley tenement where she lives. Entering the narrow passageway into the alley, one crosses the threshold into a raucous, disorderly world, a place defined by tumult, vulgar collectivism, and anarchy. 
It is a human sewer populated by the worst elements. It is a realm of excess and fabulousness. It is a wretched environment. It is the plantation extended into the city. It is a social laboratory. The ghetto is a space of encounter. The sons and daughters of the rich come in search of meaning, vitality, and pleasure. The reformers and sociologists come in search of the truly disadvantaged, failing to see her and her friends as thinkers or planners, or to notice the beautiful experiments crafted by poor black girls. The ward, the bottom, the ghetto is an urban commons where the poor assemble, improvise the forms of life, experiment with freedom, and refuse the menial existence scripted for them. It is a zone of extreme deprivation and scandalous waste. In the rows of tenements, the decent reside peacefully with the dissolute and the immoral. The Negro quarter is a place bereft of beauty and extravagant in its display of it. Moving in and moving on establish the rhythms of everyday life. Each wave of newcomers changes this place, how the slum looks and sounds and smells. No one ever settles here, only stays, waits for better, and passes through. At least that is the hope. It is not yet the dark ghetto, but soon only the black folks will remain. In the slum, everything is in short supply except sensation. The experience is too much. The terrible beauty is more than one could ever hope to assimilate, order, and explain. The reformers snap their pictures of the buildings, the kitchenettes, the clotheslines, and the outhouses. She escapes notice as she watches them from the third floor window of the alley house where she stays, laughing at their stupidity. They take a picture of Lombard Street when hardly no one is there. She wonders what fascinates them about clotheslines and outhouses. They always take pictures of the same stuff. Are the undergarments of the rich so much better? Is cotton so different than silk and not as pretty draped like a banner across the streets? The outsiders and the uplifters fail to capture it, to get it right. All they see is a typical Negro alley, blind to the relay of looks and the pangs of desire that unsettle their captions and hint at the possibility of a life bigger than poverty, at the tumult and upheaval that can't be arrested by the camera. They fail to discern the beauty, and they see only the disorder, missing all the ways black folks create life and make bare need into an arena of elaboration. A half-dressed woman wearing a housecoat over a delicate nightgown leans against the doorway, hidden by the shadows of the foyer, as she gossips with her girlfriend standing at the threshold. Intimate life unfolds in the streets. The journalists from Harper's Weekly gush and print. Above the Jews in the same tenement houses, amid scenes of indescribable squalor and tawdry finery, dwell the Negroes leading their lighthearted lives of pleasure, confusion, music, noise, and fierce fights that make them a terror to white neighbors and landlords alike. Aroused at the sight of elegantly clad domestics, janitors, and stevedores, elevator boys in rakish hats preening, 
on the corner, an aesthetical Negro's content to waste money on extravagance, ornament, and shine. The sociologist urges them to learn the value of a dollar from their Jewish and Italian neighbors. Negroes must abandon the lax moral habits, sensual indulgence, and careless excess that are the custom of slavery. The present past of involuntary servitude unfolds in the street, and the home, which was broken up completely by the slave ship and the promiscuous herding of the plantation, is now broken again, broken open in its embrace of strangers. The senses are solicited and overwhelmed. Look over here. Let your eyes take it all in. The handsome thugs lining the courtyard like sentinels, the immoderate display of three lovely flower pots arranged on the sill of a tenement window, the bed sheets, monogrammed handkerchiefs, embroidered silk hose, and whore's undergarments suspended on a line across the alley, broadcasting clandestine arrangements, wayward lives, carnal matters. Women with packages tied and paper and string flip by like shadows. The harsh light at their backs transforms them into silhouettes. Abstracted dark forms take the place of who they really are. The rag settler's daughter idle on the steps that descend to their cellar flat. The eldest is resplendent, sitting amid the debris in her Sunday hat and soiled frock. The youngest remains mystery and blur. The sun pours down the stairwell, pressing against the girls and illuminating the entrance to the small dank room, which is filled with the father's wares. Rags, papers, cast-offs, piecework and discarded objects salvaged for future use. He turns his back to the camera and eludes capture. What you can hear if you listen. The guttural tones of Yiddish making English into a foreign tongue. The round, open-mouthed sounds of North Carolina and Virginia bleeding into the hard-edged language of the city and transformed by the rhythm and cadence of northern streets. The eruption of laughter, the volley of curses, the shouts that make tenement walls vibrate and jar the floor. The sweet music of an extended moan that hushes the ones listening, eavesdroppers wanting more despite knowing they shouldn't. The rush of impressions, the musky scent of tightly pressed bodies dancing in a basement saloon, the inadvertent brush of a stranger's hand against yours as she moves across the courtyard, a glimpse of young lovers huddled in the deep shadows of a tenement hallway, the violent embrace of two men brawling, the acrid odor of bacon and hoe cake frying on an open fire, the honeysuckle of a domestic's toilet water, the maple smoke rising from an old man's corncob pipe. A whole world is jammed into one short block, crowded with black folks shut out from almost every opportunity the city affords, but still intoxicated with freedom. The air is alive with the possibilities of assembling, gathering, congregating. At any moment, the promise of insurrection, the miracle of upheaval, small groups, people by themselves, and strangers threaten to become an ensemble, to incite treason en masse.
and this is from Wayward, a short entry on the possible. Wayward, related to the family of words, errant, fugitive, recalcitrant, anarchic, willful, reckless, troublesome, riotous, tumultuous, rebellious, and wild, to inhabit the world in ways inimical to those deemed proper and respectable, to be deeply aware of the gulf between where you stayed and how you might live, waywardness, the avid longing for a world not ruled by master, man, or the police, the errant path taken by the leaderless swarm in search of a place better than here, the social poesis that sustains the dispossessed, wayward, the unregulated movement of drifting and wandering, sojourns without a fixed destination, ambulatory possibility, interminable migrations, rush and flight, black locomotion, the everyday struggle to live free, the attempt to elude capture by never settling, not the master's tools, but the ex-slave's fugitive gestures, her traveling shoes. Waywardness articulates the paradox of cramped creation, the entanglement of escape and confinement, flight and captivity. Wayward to wander, to be unmoored, adrift, rambling, roving, cruising, strolling and seeking, to claim the right to opacity, to strike, to riot, to refuse, to love what is not loved, to be lost to the world. It is the practice of the social otherwise, the insurgent ground that enables new possibilities and new vocabularies. It is the lived experience of enclosure and segregation, assembling and huddling together. It is the directionless search for a free territory. It is a practice of making and relation that unfolds within the police boundaries of the dark ghetto. It is the mutual aid offered in the open-air prison. It is a queer resource of black survival. It is a beautiful experiment in how to live. Waywardness is a practice of possibility at a time when all roads, except the ones created by smashing out or foreclose, it obeys no rules and abides no authorities. It is unrepentant. It traffics in occult visions of other worlds and dreams of a different kind of life. Waywardness is an ongoing exploration of what might be. It is an improvisation with the terms of social existence when the terms have already been dictated, when there is little room to breathe, when you have been sentenced to a life of servitude, when the house of bondage looms in whatever direction you move. It is the untiring practice of trying to live when you were never meant to survive. Thanks so much. That was so beautiful. I wanted to start, I guess, by asking about method and your methodology. I think this book uses the archive to kind of chart the lives of ordinary black girls at the turn of the century. But I think it also takes seriously that the archive is this living, breathing organism that kind of speaks back to us and demands that demands an answer, essentially. And so I want to know for you, what does what does it mean to treat the archive in that way? 
in kind of what you find in the archive, how does that muddy our sense of time and our sense of a linear kind of progress narrative in relation to blackness, in relation to um, like racial uplift, all of these questions that you're asking? Yeah, I mean, that's a very long rich, question. Very complex question. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I, I, I think you're right in that my, the character of my engagement uh, with the archive is determined by those moments of, I think, entanglement. So I think that if an image or an archival fragment seemed really like bounded in time and over, I probably wouldn't be interested mm. in it. But I think that those things that solicit me are precisely because they seem to open up a critical question that connects to our now. And the book began with these two different kinds of archival moments. Um, and one is the moment of the photograph of the girl uh, taken in the studio of, of Thomas Aikens. And originally, after having you know, written Scenes of Subjection and Lose Your Mother, just thought, I, just, I can't write another book on slavery. I just... I just don't want to go into that archive for a little while. So I said, oh, I'm going to write something that's going to be about photography and self-fashioning. And I had seen all of this, you know, this work of Thomas, um, you know, Aikens. And he was, you know, a libertine. In some ways he was like, you know, genderqueer. But then I encountered the, the photo of that girl and it arrested me. And I mm -hmm. thought, what do I do with this? Because even though I had spent so much of my career trying to trouble the notion of there being this absolute division between slavery and freedom and, you know, thinking about the afterlife of slavery, I think psychically I wanted a tidy narrative for myself. Like I was, just, I just want to be in an, you know, unvexed, happy territory. <laughs> and so then I had the encounter mm. of that photograph mm. and I thought, what do I do with this? And it seemed to, to speak to a structural predicament that's all about gender and sexual violation on the one hand. And so I said, well, let me reread Du Bois. And, and then there's this other moment that was really pivotal in the book. And it's about Du Bois seeing these two young women who are moving, you know, moving freely through the streets and who are just desiring objects desiring persons and his condemnation is so absolute and I thought well when they turned and they saw him what what did they think of him and so it was really in the the engagement between those two archival moments and I think that you know obviously those moments were were both alive and open for me that those moments were shaping my now. Mm. So that sense of an entangled present in which we live is so much with me when I'm looking at these documents mm. that are presumably from the quote-unquote past. I think um, also in kind of so much of your work, I, I remember reading um, an interview that you, you did and you said, so often narrative is this conceptual prison house. And I think that what you've done, obviously, so incredibly in all of your work is attempt to set, set about abolishing that prison. And I, I was wondering for you why narrative as that means of getting free and also why the conjunction of narrative and image. And, and 
to, to come back to that kind of image, the Thomas Aiken image, how do you write about the image even as the image should not exist, right? Like that's a... Yeah, okay, those are... You have to, you're going to have to remind me of the, of, um, the range of questions. I mean, I think probably my... At the point in which I entered graduate school, there was much suspicion, you know, cast on a certain kind of historical project after post-structuralism. And we had, like, you know, the great Bible of, like, Hayden White, you know, that was just kind of pointing out all of these ways in which narratives produce closure. So on the one hand, narrative had a teleology. It was bad. It was implying a certain subject. And then I also have all these friends in my life who are poets who are always thinking about the criticality of the poetic and narrative, you know, crew, da da da. So I was like, but that's a degraded material I love and I want to work with it. And I think that, you know, that maybe one can do some critical stuff with it. I think that I'm probably attracted to narrative because a very simple notion of what narrative is is about plotting time, planning mm. change over time, just really following action and movement. And it's that con- fascination with, you know, what changes over time and mm. often what does not change over time is what my work is about. And I, I think I there's a the assumption of there being this hard and fast boundary between narratives and poetics is something that I, I also try to work against, you know, and that I want to do more... Um, derangement of that boundary, but from within this, the space of narrative. I think photographs were really very important uh, to this book because how does one actually reconstruct the lives of, like, you know, ordinary black folks, particularly um, young black women who didn't leave behind notebooks or journals or letters? The archive of their existence has overwhelmingly been produced to document all the ways in which they are a problem, in need of correction, in need of incarceration. So photos were objects that also helped me build out narratives. So a lot of the book is um, acrostic, and I'm literally just, you know, spinning stories based upon these photographs. And I think that... Some of the people who write about photographs, and I think like Ariella Azoulay is one of those people um, in particular, and she talks about the activity of watching and looking as, as something that opens up that photographic event again. So rather than a photograph capturing or indexing something that happened in the past, once there's a viewer there, everything becomes open again, and the photos were a site where I created that opening. And I also, it was really important for me to think about the look that circumvents the dominant organizing gaze. So even as those images, some of them are produced by reformers who have a project of like slum clearance or the uplift and training and education of immigrants and black folks, that even within the confines of those very instrumental Mm -hmm. images, you have all of these modes of kind of resisting the compelled image, and you have another kind of look that resides within them. So I thought, ah, if I narrate that scene from the look of the girl who's on the third floor looking out at the photographer, 
that will yield a very different kind of story than the organizing grid of the reformer who's taking the photo. I think something that you must get asked a lot is how you gave yourself the authority to to narrate in that way. But I think what's more kind of interesting maybe is like, what does it mean to you to to counter the state's fictions and the stories that the state tells about itself in the archive with fictions of your own or with truth or with however you're thinking about the ways that you're writing? That's, uh, it's complex. Um, because, you know, on the one hand, and especially the... By the time of writing a third book, what's clear is that you're never at the page by yourself. And all the kind of things that have shaped you and all the great writers you read, they're they're on the page with you. So it's not a singular utterance anyway. Um, So I think that that was, you know, one thing to think that like, oh, there's so many other thinkers and writers who made it possible for me to write. There are ways to to honor the kind of the collective utterance that is the act of writing, um, even though it may seem to be solitary. And I, I think that thinking about that space of the chorus or the circle, um, that there are these social formations when we're in company with one another and we speak in those spaces. And I was trying to enact that in the writing. There's an interview in the White Review when I'm in a dialogue with, you know, Victoria. And one of the things I say is that there are certain spaces for me, these structural spaces, which are really formative. And one of them is like the circle. And, you know, there's in, you know, black letters or minoritized letters, there's this notion of, well, how does one then translate that experience to this quote unquote general readership? So, you know, Douglas is like, he's within the circle and they're involved in this kind of production of a philosophy of being, which isn't recognized as that until presumably he translates that to a reader. And I thought, well, no, what about just like writing from within the space of that? And so it felt less that it was me trying to translate and to convey that space of sociality than me just like writing from being within the context of his, of, you know, being immersed in it, mm. right? And so I didn't feel that I was writing, and the writing that I was speaking for, mm. I felt I was speaking with. And I think what authorized that was also the sense that we are sharing and living the same set of structural predicaments. Like, I don't know, I think it was like yesterday in Texas, like a black woman was like murdered, like in her bedroom, like playing a game with her nephew. So it was just like, oh, the, you know, the crisis um, and the precarity of black life, that the kind of, that the that the interior space is not bounded or protected or safe. But yet, we still make intimate life, yet we still imagine that one might live and love. So I think it's feeling that I'm living in that same predicament, living in that now, made me also feel that I could write with them. 
And on that question of imagination, do you think you're talking about how there's lots of recurring themes across your work and maybe you seem to be writing the same thing in different ways. And yeah. so do you think that you you're building this like one kind of long continuum of imagining freedom in different ways and in, in, and in thinking about how your how your work charts the making and unmaking of racial orders, do you think that the imagination is always entangled in that? I mean, I, I, I would say yes, because just to have the idea that we can unmake the racial order is, you know, that requires imagination, right? Because um, it's not that we've lived in a way that would kind of make us really confident about that project, but yet we, <laughs> but yet we do, you know, um, you, you know, we do believe it is possible. We do strive to do that, and I would say that's the work of a radical imagination. But, but yes, I am, you know, I do this experience of a certain worlding that you know happens in the 15th century and that we're still within its, you know, in its reach and what it might mean to undo that Mm. and to create something else is a question that I am compelled by. Um, I wanted to talk also a bit about like errancy and a bit about waywardness and what that means to you. I think one of my favourite quotes from the book is when you say, waywardness is the practice of possibility at a time when all roads except the ones created by smashing out are foreclosed. It obeys no rules and abides no authorities. It is unrepentant. It traffics in occult visions of other worlds. What is it about the quotidian and the intimate um, and the private that allows you to think about waywardness in the way that you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the intimate and the quotidian um, have always been important for me because I'm thinking about transformation and resistance and refusal. Those kinds of practices that I focus on have been considered like below politics, capital P, or like outside the domain of that which is, you know, legitimately political. But for me, that's where all of the kind of the, the pressure mm. and the possibility is, you know, like how do we sustain life, make life, and reproduce life in basically in circumstances mm. that are unlivable, right? And that's different than um, organizing, you know, a protest. And I'm not saying don't do that, but it just seems that, and that's where all of the unknown actors, mm. that's where they're taking up these questions, you know, how does one live under capitalism? How does one live in a way that's recalcitrant to cal- capitalism, which is basically what every working or poor person has to try to figure out in order to survive? And so just, you know, looking at that level and saying, well, how are people thinking about what this thing is and what are some of the ways to allude it to to occupy a, a momentary or transient refuge. For me, the intimate, though, is not the private. And I think it's because the that distinction between the public and private is also a distinction of that kind of order of values that I'm questioning. And it's also because the private is so very elusive um, in the context of certain forms of surveillance and targeting Anyway, so I think that so much of the way reformers and sociologists actually 
describe the problems of poor people is that they actually fail to achieve a certain notion of private life, mm. right? And so I'm saying, yeah, they do. And isn't it beautiful? <laughs> you know, is it when we just kind of look at the, the relations and the forms of intimacy that, that unfold, that defy those discrete narratives mm. of individualization and privatization. Mm. I was wondering on that if you could speak a bit about Du Bois and I think for me when I was reading the book there were bits where he just seemed um, as you kind of described his intention to to uh, kind of mark what he was seeing or to to write it down a bit ridiculous to to the people that he was studying because they he kind of assumed that they weren't able to name their own condition um, and I was wondering yeah like what 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 is it about um, the way in which those ordinary black girls are living their lives that confound the gazes of the social reformer, the um, the sociologist. How do they make figures like Du Bois, how do they challenge basically th- what they're saying about um, the, the condition in which they live? I mean, someone said to me that you give your, it's like a body slam with Du Bois. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, um, because, um, you know, I certainly like love Du Bois and his work, but he is also, you know, the, the patriarch and the father mm. who I'm in this like very critical relation to. You know, Du Bois, and particularly at this moment, I mean, the, the scary thing is that Du Bois is a certain kind of feminist. So if we're looking at what, you know, feminist reformers of the same period are saying, a lot of what they're saying sounds like what Du Bois is saying, um, too. So it's not that um, he's particularly egregious. I think that, for me, what Du Bois brings up at that moment is the limits of a certain kind of politics of fulfillment. And by that, I mean that Du Bois ultimately wants black people to enjoy equality, And he's assuming that the only way that one can enjoy or have a right to equality is by meeting the norms, Mm -hmm. right? Abiding by the script Mm -hmm. and meeting its terms. So um, as he's recording and measuring and judging, it's with this ultimate goal of um, black freedom and equality in mind because he knows that difference and deviation are punished and he fears you know the consequences of that you know he changes his position so that like 20 years later he's able to see in those young women what he absolutely could not see at the end uh, of the 19th century I think that these young women challenge him because it's ultimately about a faith in the norms, Mm -hmm. right? And um, that those norms should determine how we live Mm -hmm. and that those norms are um, the only possibility of social organization. One thing that also struck me reading um, the book was thinking about the kind of presence of queer life in the understanding of blackness as a social problem. Um, So you have all of these women who are are coming up against uh, scripts of kind of heterosexuality and marriage scripts. But then you also have these uh, people or these characters, these figures who are already outside of 
what it means to be right, right? Like waywardness is, is always a wrongness. And so I was wondering if there, for you as a theorist, as a, as a writer, was there something different about charting those queer li uh, lives or relations? I'm thinking about the Bentley and um, that kind of section of the book um, that was different to thinking about the life of like Maddie or, or kind of other characters in the book. I think blackness is kind of queer. Mm. I mean, I take seriously the work of Hortense Spillers around ungendering. And I think that even as black people have aspired to a certain kind of heteronormativity, they have failed to achieve it, mm. you know? And that's just like the fact. Um, even if we look, and certainly like in the States, I mean, 75% of like black children are born outside of marriage, heterosexual marriage, so that basically these institutions are kind of minority institutions. They're, they're not really norms. Uh, Kathy Cohen, uh, the sociologist, you know, she says black people, even to the degree that they're heterosexual, they're not heteronormative. Mm. So I think I was trying to think about queerness and its breadth and varieties mm. for Many of these women, you know, gender is a, a kind of problem because of their failure to achieve gender norms. And I think that with La Bentley in particular, I mean, there's a great book by Riley Snorton called Black on Both Sides. And he's thinking about issues of fungibility and blackness in relationship to um, transness. And I think that Bentley's provocation is so great because the terms aren't really fixed in black life. Mm -hmm. And that's why the efforts to police often become as great, um, because it's the sense of the openness and this porosity, which many people experience as a kind of danger mm -hmm. and who have a great deal of anxiety about, um, but which meant that we, um, you know, have been forced to and have embraced creating other kinds of structures. I mean, one thing that's an interesting point for me, there was something, you know, for those of you who read Hortense Spillers, you know, she reads something called like the Monaghan Report, which was uh, this kind of report written um, by a U.S. congressman about the crisis of black life, which was, again, basically about like the failure to achieve a certain kind of family. Well, now even like white families in the U.S. look what black families looked yeah, like right, in 1965. Yeah. So partly it's just the reminder, these are social institutions. Mm. So it's not like heterosexual marriage in the form that we know is timeless mm. and immutable. It's a social organization. Mm. So I'm just trying to bring into view a range of social mm. possibilities. I think on that question of kind of confounding all of these, like blackness confounding all of these um, categories, I was thinking about what it means to make blackness like legible. And how, like, f for me, when I was reading this book, blackness seemed to be this generative location. And it wasn't necessarily a kind of, like, black is beautiful. It was more that in a world where the, the world is socially organised around your death, around your not living, the, the instinct and the ability to, or the desire to attempt to get free, that's where a new kind of knowledge came out. And so I was thinking for you... <laughs> What, what does that like? How does that understanding of blackness and survival and persistence and all of those questions inform your reading against the grain or your reading against um, these institutions? Yeah, I mean, I think that waywardness, 
has this like intimate relationship to categories like queerness, anarchy, and blackness. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think waywardness was even as kind of blackness has a privileged relationship to it, was the kind of was the organizing category rather than blackness because there are also a variety of projects that name themselves through blackness, right? And so we see that um, it's not only a racist state that is targeting and focusing on these girls, but there are certain, you know, political actors, feminist social reformers who are race folks, mm-hmm. you know, who have a kind of a black politic, who also designate them as a problem. So I think that waywardness was a way to think about certain kinds of potentiality and possibility mm-hmm. that reside in blackness without wanting to make blackness itself one unified mm. thing. There are the black folks that want to live in Wakanda, and there are those of us <laughs> for whom it is frightening. So do you know what I'm saying? So there are different visions of what, um, you know, what black possibility and black futures might also look like. <laughs> I was I'm also uh, thinking about a specific moment in the book um, where, you, where you talk about how these, um, indif- how these individuals are not interested in ownership and are not interested in property and are not interested in kind of the language of the state. Um, and I was, I, I wondered if you could speak a, a, a bit to that, how the afterlife of slavery affects one's ability to think about one's place in the world and what one owns and what, what belongs to, to a community, a people, a, you know, us. For me, it's about thinking about what, dispossession affords. And I think for black people, because of the history of slavery and dispossession, that the terms of value have been different, right? And so these issues of kind of sovereignty and self-possession or value determined by what you own just haven't exercise this the same kind of force and power mm-hmm. and i think that that's enabling mm-hmm. so i think that in looking at that i've i've tried to say like oh that there's this that there's a kind of a black radicalism that also crosses the atlantic which isn't about necessarily a nationalism mm-hmm. or a pan africanism but just like there were those you know decentered stateless folks battling the great states mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't be made into captives mm-hmm. there um is a vision of liberation and freedom that's not about being property owners mm-hmm. too and i think that this is you know particularly pertinent in the context of the states and thinking about issues of decolonization, Mm. right? And so what does it mean to think about a black politics that takes the claims that decolonization is not a metaphor? Then it's about inhabiting an earth that's not owned by anyone, Mm. right? Like that's, if we have a future, it seems to reside in that. And I'm just saying that, and those who don't own know more about organizing social life that's not predicated on property. I mean, studies have shown poor people give a larger percentage of their wealth to others than rich people do. Mm. Again, that's about like a body of knowledge that we might look to and um, learn from Mm. and and try to replicate. Do you think that there's something significant uh, about attempting to kind of chart black life in this anarchic 
way at the turn of the century as opposed to in the middle of it or as opposed to any other time. I think that one thing that also really struck me was that the people that you write about are always on the cusp of something else. Something else is always just kind of outside of their grasp. Partly this period between the end of the 19th century and basically the age of the new Negro, the 1920s, is kind of, you know, it's been like a a dead period or a minor period in African-American history because it hasn't been organized by major movements, right? So I think when I started working in that zone, I was like, well, what's actually going on here? And so it was the discovery of, you know, people trying to think about freedom and flight in the context of this emergent enclosure, but where... um, organized politics hasn't colonized all the terms of uh, possibility yet. I think that there are moments when what the kind of the prevailing terms of the given are don't really have that many answers for us, you know, or that it's a, a certain set of like false options. So if we look at, you know, the way kind of black leaders and thinkers the way they are kind of like occupied during this period, it's really about trying to like stave off these increasing, you know, modes of white violence because it's also this period is called the decades of disappointment because the, you know, the incidents of a kind of lynching um, and rape are, you know, skyrocketing. And so these like efforts to get recognition, to get equality, to have people recognize citizenship are taking up you know, so much of the air in the room and those efforts, they don't win. Mm. They're not. So, so much effort is required to make the claim for a certain kind of recognition and belonging. But in the meantime, we have to figure out how it is we're going to live. And and I don't know if the moment we're in is, you know, analogous, but, you know, on the one hand in the States, things are very, very dire now. They're so dire. But in that direness, people are also creating these very imaginative, radical alternatives to the given because they're not expecting certain transformations to come from organized party politics. So there's like a proliferation of freedom schools, of land efforts, of, you know, organized, you know, farming in response to capitalist agriculture to squatters movement, um, it's not like those forms of practices are like opposed to efforts to impeach Mm. Trump, but just like, you know, but that the effort to impeach the president don't colonize and exhaust the imagination of the possible. Mm. So Mm. it's just thinking about those other levels of the everyday, the ordinary, the quotidian. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Um, I could go on, but uh, <laughs> um, let's have some questions and brief comments. I feel like myself and everyone else are just afraid of coming across like stupid in response to the incredible conversation that's been had so far. Um, but I wanted to ask just um, out of curiosity, outside of your relationship with photography and the archive that you've been examining to work towards this book are there other any other forms um or pieces of artistic work that you're currently inspired by or things that you are looking to to sort of be generated for your work in the future yeah. no, that's a great question i mean i have various kinds of collaborative you know projects with people who are working in dance and choreography and uh just uh uh, on Friday night, there's a really wonderful young experimental documentary maker, Garrett Bradley, and um, who has a kind of a film practice that's very much like my archival practice in print. So I'm constantly looking to and learning from um, people who, who are working in other domains because it also teaches me how to work too. And in uh, a different note, there's a, a sculptor, Simone Lee, who she had a show at the Guggenheim, and then she has this huge piece on the High Line in New York. And um, in collaboration with her show at the Guggenheim, we kind of made, for one afternoon, it was kind of crazy, we made the Guggenheim into this, like, black feminist church. <laughs> so um, it was, you know, wonderful. So I, I think I'm really interested in spaces where, like, poets and writers and movement folks and visual artists come together because we're really thinking about a shared set of questions, even as we approach those questions differently and work in different kinds of material. But it was just very, very powerful to have, you know, all of these black women thinkers and writers and artists together from all over the globe thinking about, you know, feminism and futures. I'm saying this as someone who is currently doing a PhD, but I have a kind of a question around... um, so for me, thinking about all these really generative spaces of um, the wayward, the subversive, the other to the main, etc., I find myself struggling all the time with being in academia and kind of wanting to subvert it and burn it down and make it more wayward, but also kind of profiting from being in it and having a voice within it and what that means. And I was wondering um, for you what it is about uh, the particular kind of critical discourse that takes place within academia that has made you want to continue working in that realm even whilst also subverting and working through other kinds of modalities? Yeah, that's a great question. I think at one point in time, the university seemed like a refuge from the marketplace. So, uh, (laughs) um, So that one could actually just be involved in thought and writing and not worry about, you know, whether it was, you know, instrumental or that you could, you know, sell it. I I think that that has become just less and less so over the course of my tenure in the university. Um, I also, one of the things that I would still, I can still say that I love about the university, I feel that I'm the, I get to curate this great tradition and 
teach it. And sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, and they pay me for that. Um, and again, partly that's also generational because as more and more PhDs are in this very precarious position, I mean, in the U.S., only 25% of the professoriate is tenured, you know, so the majority of workers are. So that's also that's also changed. So those, but those were two really important things. I think that for students in PhD programs, I mean, there is, you know, there there's hope. I mean, there's the you know the undercommons model of being in it, but you know, using all of those goods and just opening up the space for other people. I was in Montreal, and um, Aaron Manning and Brian Massumi have this thing there called the Sense Lab, which is this like wonderful open space, and half of the people in the Sense Lab aren't university students, but anyone who's just interested in being a part of the project. So that's a way that the university's resources can make a lot possible for others. And the last thing I would say around the, the writing, um, Lauren Berlant, Kathleen Stewart, Erica Rand, and myself have, have a series at Duke. It's just started. It's called Writing Matters. So that if you're a new PhD and a vulnerable young professor who wants to write in a different kind of mode, this is a way to have you know the stamp of a university press but still have some space for writing differently. So keep that in mind. So my question will take us back to Lose Your Mother. It's a book that, for me, when I read it, generated like more questions than it answers, and that was totally fine, and it was a beautiful book. Thank you for writing it. Um, but one thing that caught my attention was that, if I remember correctly, went to Ghana on a Fulbright Awards scholarship, and I think for such awards... And scholarships, it has like the proposal has to be very, like elaborate, and you know this is what I'm trying to achieve. This, this, that, and I found it captivating that you're able to like generate a book that was so laden with very important questions out of through the means of using like this institution that focuses so much on being like straightforward and getting answers so um my question is um how, what was your fulbright proposal because I'm, I'm just like, okay, okay i've always so, wondered because i was like yeah. they gave her the money no, no, so no, it no, must no. have been like no, very no. brilliant okay, okay. and then she went and did all this so, so what so, the, so, so what i'm going to say is going to be totally deflating so my fulbright application it had literally been rejected from the applications for ghana and someone who was sponsoring it at the museum basically went over to USAID and begged. They were like, please, I know this doesn't seem like a good project, but please, please, <laughs> give her the Fulbright anyway. So no, so I didn't write that like pr- proposal that you know, would have gotten the grant. And in fact, if someone hadn't intervened after I had already been rejected, I would have never had a Fulbright in, you know, in the first place. Um, and at that... And at that moment, though, I think that, um, I guess I want to say like failure and not knowing how to do things is also really important because the project that I came to do in Ghana, I actually couldn't do there because I only knew how to work with the archives in a way. And so there really weren't any archives at all for the kind of things that I wanted to think about. So... 
I got the Fulbright, then I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be this like double failure because there's no project for me to write after the Fulbright year. So in a way, dealing with the possibility of that, I was just forced to work in a way that I didn't want to work. And it was in the context of, you know, working and talking with other scholars and particularly African scholars who were you know, we're like, you have to put yourself in this book. And I'm, I'm a very private person. So the last thing I wanted to do was write a book where, like, I'm in it. But I think that because I wanted to think about the afterlife of slavery, how that produced now, how that produced me, in a way, I had to stand in to answer that question. And I feel like if I tried to describe that project for the Fulbright application, it would have also been rejected. <laughs> I had a question about how you negotiated like your archival research in terms of photographs and sort of the captions, sort of the lack of the titles or the titles themselves. Because I found lots of really interesting things you said about how captions always like impose sort of a moral um, imperative. So if you'd just be able to talk about that. I mean, one of the things that, you know, struck me just looking at the archive of photographs at the end of 19th and the beginning of the 20th century was just like the violence of the caption. Um, so I remember there was like lovely photograph of, you know, a young black woman with her baby and it was like wench with pickaninny. Like that was the caption, right? Or, you know, less egregious maybe, maybe not, um, was like a photograph that had just the caption Negro Quarter. And you saw on one stoop was like, you know, that kind of black woman talking to her friend in the foyer that you can't see. But, you know, right next to them were the kind of Jewish Russian boys and the Italian neighbors. So partly what social reformers were doing is that they had a project to homogenize racial space and to make it seem like, you know, because they thought that dangers resided in a certain, an interracial coexistence. So they created pictures and captions that did that work of segregation and cleansing and separation. So the same photo looked very different to me. So by not having the caption, the image could be mobilized by my stories instead of um, the project um, of the social reformer. So that's why I needed to kind of remake those titles. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting what you were saying about writing being like a collective utterance kind of, and when you come to the page, like, um, you're not alone. I like that. I was also wondering, like, when you're writing who you're writing for and if you have a particular kind of audience in mind. I also recently read Lose Your Mother and was I quite I really enjoyed how like honest you are about everyone that you meet, even though like they could have read the book and I don't know. They did read know. the book, not that they could, they did. So um from my mother to you know, yeah. yeah. I feel that I'm fortunate in that there are lots of really talented, wonderful people who are just like in the world that I'm in, from my students to colleagues and collaborators. So I'm so I think with them and about them as I'm also um, as I'm also writing, 
at the same time, there's something that Edward Gleason says that gives me lots of, it kind of can keep me moving forward um, because sometimes I'll envision myself, I'll be like, okay, if I have to Xerox it and sell it on the corner myself, I'm going to you know, write this next book. But he, he often, he says that he, as, a, as a Caribbean writer, he's always thought of you know, Caribbean literature as a pre-literature a literature that's written in anticipation of its audience. And I also like that, too, because it frees us up from trying to be legible within the terms of the given. So sometimes we can be timely and hit a chord. Sometimes people are, like, incredibly untimely. And that doesn't mean that, I mean, there's been a lot of great work that has been produced that has been utterly untimely at the moment at which it appears. And 20 years later, we're like, oh, my God. So I think that, think about some, in anticipation of, it's also a reminder of, like, how things might change. So that's, that's something that I think about. But that chorus is with me, and I have a lot of love and power and strength and energy from that chorus. I'm a little bit floored by the elegance of your articulation of these things. So I think that I'm going to construct my question quite badly and clumsily because, yeah, I'm kind of blown away. But um, I'm really interested in how um, you find roots out of and places of refuge and succor within epistemological violence. So how you try and think from the position of the unthought or how you write from the from the eyes of the girl in the photo in the in the image, and um, so I was kind of wondering if you could speak to the role of um, writing from or with different cosmologies um, in your work, because I read something about this in the White Review interview. Do you want to say one more sentence? Like, so on the one hand, there's that kind of like there's the violence of reason that I'm always thinking about, but I just want to make sure. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. So how our schema of like the, the filter with which we see everything is so dominated by the symbolic order of in which, you know, things aren't legible because the way that we can read things is dominated by a certain symbolic order. Yeah, I, I think maybe like simply I would say it's like how we're trying to like get free in the work, you know, and I think that that's part of not having my grid determined by the organizing grid. And um, there's something that I thought that I used to say, but then I found out that Morrison said it, and she actually heard James Baldwin say it. Um, but I used to say, like, oh, you know, there's that kind of, like, you know, the white man's super ego on your shoulder, and you have to, like, knock him off. Um, but, uh, but, you know... Morrison said it, and Baldwin said it, and I think it, it really goes to the heart of what you're asking, how um, we can think outside the grid in these terms of order. And I think that that's the, that that's the challenge of the work. I think that that's also why I'm, I think, attracted to wayward types or to, I'm at the beginning of a new project but it's it's about this kind of group of people who think that you know a great change is possible and I think that thinking about lives like that also helped me to um, try to escape um, 
Um, I think it's just left for me to say thank you all so much for coming. Um, thank you to the London Review of Books. Um, thank you, Sadia, for being here and for sharing your work with us. It's been an absolute honour to be in conversation with you, honestly. But yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.